Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, a Radio Free Europe podcast on developments in Russia, its war against Ukraine, and its relations with the rest of the world. I'm Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL and author of The Week in Russia newsletter. This week's podcast is about the anti-Semitic riot at the airport in Dagestan's capital and some of the latest developments related to the war in Ukraine, uh, including uh, high-level disputes in Ukraine about how it's going. And my guest today on The Week Ahead in Russia is Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. Thanks very much for joining me, Mark. Always a pleasure. All right. It's great to have you on the show again. It's been a little less than one month since your last appearance, uh, so thanks for appearing again. Uh, but quite a lot has happened in that time, and we're going to discuss some of it. The first thing I want to ask about is the anti-Semitic riot, or what some are calling the attempted pogrom, uh, at the airport in Mahachkala, Dagestan. Now, hundreds, uh, maybe over a thousand people rampaged through the airport looking for people uh, they were told on social media would be arriving on a flight from Israel. Really shocking scenes uh, in footage from the, from the incident. It was one of several anti-Semitic uh, attacks or incidents in the North Caucasus uh, around that time. Now, you had some really informative analysis of this quite uh, horrifying occurrence on your podcast, uh, your own podcast, In Moscow's Shadows, uh, this weekend. And I might try to delve into some of the details of that. But let's start with a question that is broad but but fairly brief. Um, what does this say about anti-Semitism and extremism uh, and the threat of un- unrest in Russia and particularly in Dagestan and the North Caucasus. How bad a sign is it in terms of what may happen in the future? Well, the issue is never the length of the question, but how long the answer is going to end up being. (laughs) I mean, I think we have to recognize that Russia has a long, dark, and deeply disturbing history of anti-Semitism, but we should recognize that things have changed. That in fact, yes, there absolutely is still anti-Semitism. But if we look at, for example, the regular uh, surveys that are carried out by the Anti-Defamation League, who have essentially, I think I would suggest, one of the most um, evolved ways of trying to assess anti-Semitism through how people respond to a variety of anti-Semitic tropes. It's clear that, yes, Russia has a problem, but it's a problem that they would assess as being on the same level as that faced by Spain or Belgium and less of an issue than you'd find, for example, in Hungary and Poland. Now, look, this is not my area of expertise. I'm just simply kind of reporting their findings. But I think you have to recognize that. And I think this in some ways should be seen not so much as anti-Semitic, so much as Islamist in the North Caucasus and a particular kind of rather violent and vicious Islamism that clearly at present is directed towards Israel and the Jewish population, but in some ways is, is, I would suggest, much, much broader. I mean, obviously, that kind of Islamism is also pretty anti-Semitic, but I'm saying that the the drivers are different. And I think what this really says is 
something about the North Caucasus, which I've long felt, although it's easy to characterize the Russian Federation as an empire, and obviously it was built on the bones of an empire, but nonetheless, much of it does not, in my opinion, really fit that model. The North Caucasus, I would suggest, is probably the the one part of the Russian Federation that really does feel still like an imperial possession with all the, the challenges of management that that, that term brings. And I think, you know, if we talk about signs of what may happen in the future, what this really brings up, I think, is the fact that for the moment, the North Caucasus, I think, is, is one of the biggest domestic policy concerns for the Russian regime, because at a time when so so much of your forces are tied up in this quote unquote special military operation in Ukraine. The last thing you want is another explosion of violence, whether it's in Chechnya. The Chechnya at the moment is still pretty much uh, you know, strangled by Kadyrov's fist or whether it's elsewhere where there's again not too long ago we've, we've had uh, substantial terrorist campaigns, local insurgencies, the so-called Jamaats, the fighting units and such like. And in that context, Really, they're, they're, they're caught in a, Kremlin's caught in a trap of its own making. It's tried for a long time to turn a blind eye to a lot of the deeply unpleasant Islamism in the region, precisely because it doesn't want to trigger a backlash if it cracks down. Now it's finding that that's actually harder and harder to ignore. And the big fear is that if and when the state steps in and starts to sort of push back against this Islamism, that is the point when, in a way, the state begins to identify itself as the enemy of this movement. And that's when we might see another resurgence of this sort of, you know, it's a cycle, frankly, of, of insurgency and, and violence in the North Caucasus. So summarize this rather rambling answer to your question. I mean, I think this is, this is not so much a sign of anti-Semitism in the Russian Federation, so much of still largely uncontrolled and often quite violent Islamism within the North Caucasus, which for a long time the Kremlin tried to largely ignore. And now it's going to find it harder and harder to do so. And when it starts to act, it's likely to be able to suppress part of it, but radicalize the rest. Thank you. And how much, um, I mean, I, I have to say this, it brings to my when this um when this uh, eruption of violence at the at the airport in Mahachka occurred you know it was hard to predict what was going to happen but you know i had some feeling that this could could sort of quickly lead to you know a bigger uh, a bigger flare up um that that would be quite um you know destabilizing for russia uh, and could have huge consequences you know that doesn't seem to have happened um but I, but i'm I'm also brought to mind of a trip to Chechnya. This was sometime in the 2000s, um, after the after the second war had kind of died down. There was still some violence, uh, but I spoke to. I think we were there to sort of witness how great the rebuilding of Grozny had been. But I spoke to some students, you know, Chechen students, and essentially they saw, you know, they they saw the future as being not with Russia, separate from Russia, you know, so it seems like, you know, is this the kind of thing that's, uh, and you mentioned uh, the way that the Kremlin tries, turns a blind eye, obviously that's happened in Chechnya, very specifically, uh, the way that, that Kadyrov is, is, is allowed to, to rule there, um, in exchange, I guess, for keeping a, a lid on it. Uh, but so, do you, I mean, do you think this is sort of a, this, this, uh, what happened at the airport is, is sort of a, 
a sign that this kind of thing may may occur more more often now you know may, maybe kind of turning a corner i mean look it's too early to, to say is the honest answer but this is always the, the the concern i mean what tends to happen after all is not that you get the emergence of, of fully formed political movements that are keen on breaking away from the Russian Federation, not least because as soon as they did that, as soon as they started to form, that's when the FSB would roll in. Instead, it tends to be that there's some particular spark, some particular incident, and often the response to that incident from the state that generates a kind of a, a rising groundswell of resistance. So look, in this case, I mean, the state apparatus locally anyway did not respond terribly quickly um but it did respond and when it did it did the obvious things it clamped down you know basically jammed all communications around the airport area it sent in the amon the riot police and we can expect that you know there's been a few convictions already on relatively minor charges we can expect that the investigation is going to lead to a lot more convictions on probably more serious charges so in, in some ways, it's more that this is, this is two things. One, it's a potential start point. Who knows? Is there going to be then, you know, if, if other people get arrested, some kind of movement to free whoever? Or is it more that it is actually we should regard it as just as a symptom? Because after all, if, if you take Dagestan just simply as a specific example, you know, Dagestan has had a lot of often really quite violent protests, most of which have nothing to do with anti-Semitism or, or the like, they're about, you know, basically unemployment, uh, which is relatively high in Dagestan. There's a large unemployed young man population, particularly in Makachkala, which has expanded dramatically without the economic uh, sort of infrastructure to support it. And, you know, essentially rootless and unemployed young men tend to be the, the root of all evil. Um, so, you know, it, it, it more than anything else, it's just a sign of the fact that actually the state's grip on the North Caucasus generally is actually quite, quite um, weak, I would suggest, at the moment. And in terms of long-term independence, I mean, again, I, I cannot see Putin or any other leader in the Kremlin actively being willing to encourage this. But let's be perfectly honest, I think most Russians would be quite delighted to see the North Caucasus go, go their own way, because if, if nothing else, they are a massive drain on the, the, the federal treasury. Right, sort of a chlatid kamit kavkaz. Well, thanks. Uh, and sorry, I'm going to ask another question that that kind of occurred to me recently. Maybe should have before, but you know, uh, hundreds of of people storming the airport. Um, many of them young men. Um, I guess the what wonders you wonder why they're not fighting in Ukraine. I mean, is that is it because the state, um, you know, wants sort of needs to lay off them and not not pressure them or is some other reason no i mean i think it's a combination of factors um including that look i don't think the state is in a position to be turning people away if they actually volunteer but i think you know, a lot of these people are not looking to volunteer they're not necessarily in the um, the reservist categories at the moment the state is looking for. Remember, it, it does appear at the moment that, that actually there are a lot of people coming forward to actually volunteer. Yes, we also see a certain amount of rolling mobilization of reservists. But when you've got lots of, to put it bluntly, cannon fodder signing up, 
the reservists that you're going to mobilize are more likely to be people who have you know, specific skills, experiences and such like. So they're not just simply someone who, who spent a year in a motor rifle regiment somewhere. Um, so I think also that these are less likely to be targeted for that. No, I mean, you know, if nothing else, it highlights the degree to which actually Russia still has a massive potential mobilization pool. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of these people do know people who have either volunteered or been been sent to Ukraine. Um, and unfortunately, there's still a lot more who could be sent. Okay, well, thanks for that as well. Um, now, um, and we'll get to the the war in Ukraine more more specifically later. Um, the the airport attack uh, in Dagestan obviously was brought on, at least in part, uh, by the Israel Hamas war and what's happening in the Middle East. Um, I believe uh, local. You know, regional leaders in the North Caucasus had had urged people not to not to protest, not to go out on the streets. I, I think I, I read that maybe Kremlin spokesman uh, Dmitry Peskov essentially said, or, or maybe it was a local a regional leader, but said, you know, President Putin is you know supportive of the Palestinians, uh, and that's all you need to know. You should just. Uh, you know, don't don't uh, don't make waves. Don't go out on the street and and demonstrate uh, about about the war. But obviously, it it contributed in in a big way to to this um, to this riot. Um, and, and some of the the context uh, in Russia is that uh, that it occurred shortly before um, what's now called National Unity Day, November fourth. Uh, and also ahead of what I think you mentioned in your podcast is likely to be an announcement by Putin of of his intention to secure another term in the presidential election in March. In fact, um, there had been reports, reports and rumors, I guess, that this could happen, that he might make an announcement um, at, uh, you know, th- this past Saturday on November 4th uh, in connection with, with a big kind of uh, ex- exhibit uh, that that opened and will run through, I think, through March or into March, and presumably is being used as as uh, part of the presidential campaign. But uh, he did not do that. Um, so, but my question is sort of what what does this um, what does this rampage, this anti-Semitic uh, you know riot, say about unity? Uh, and do you think it will affect Putin's political plans or? or um, or his messaging ahead of the election. I think you have to start by again emphasizing that the North Caucasus is not Russia, and it's frankly not even, I would suggest, representative of many areas with large or majority Muslim populations. You know, if you look at what's happening in, in Tatarstan, for example, totally different situation, relatively stable, economically quite quite successful. Um, you know, clearly still solidly institutionalized in in terms of its power so you know again i think this is a north caucasus problem more than a russia problem but on the other hand i think that what it does emphasize is actually the degree to which bubbling away behind the scenes of the um, thoroughly manufactured national unity there are a series of social political economic and other problems and they take different forms in different places. I mean, again, in the North Caucasus, part of the problem is precisely that these regions are poor, high levels of unemployment, 
not really much prospect of any kind of sort of turnaround and yet have a proportionately much higher birth rate and have some time which means again a lot of young people without really much much to do and that's again as i said not not a a good thing elsewhere you've got different kinds of problems you know if one looks at uh, the russian far east there the problems are much more to do with with infrastructure with that sense of you know how, how it can be kind of connected the, the issues of relationship with china if you're looking at you know other impoverished rust belt parts on the western side of of russia you know west of the urals again there it's a question of how can you actually you know basically in times of budget pressure and economic downturn manage a necessary revival of traditional economies you know all of these things so so i think it's it, it's not so much that it's the north caucasus specifically so much as this is the particular canary that died in the mine which warns us of the fact that the there's going to be you know really quite a quite a tough job of political management i would suggest over the course of the next year especially if what we've heard that is true and that putin and his political technologists particularly kirienka the presidential administration are determined that he needs to have a dramatic show of support in the presidential elections this this figure of 80% of the vote is being bandied around which is higher than he would ever have had before well that means that there's going to have to be a lot of not just of these sort of current sweeteners you know we've got everything from from prize draws to increased payments to various sort of sectors of the budgetniki people whose um, salaries are paid by national and local government and such like but also it's going to mean a hell of a lot of vote rigging and generally the application of the dark arts of, of managing elections so there's a challenge ahead and you know if one talks about messaging i mean what's interesting is the way that national unity day itself has morphed i mean this is after all an essentially artificial celebration it's technically pegged to the 17th century moment when sort of at the end of the, the time of troubles that followed the death of Ivan the Terrible um at a point when the Poles were in control of Moscow and you had people's militias being raised by Minin and Pozharsky and driving the Poles out of Moscow and the idea is that what this shows is precisely a sort of upwelling of national spirit a grassroots movement that crossed all the social and class barriers yada 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 um and in its own way even though in many ways it was actually sort of built as a, a cynical way to detract attention from the continued sort of vestigial celebrations of the great october revolution by the communists on the fourth, the 7th of november nonetheless you know actually it was in my experience a pretty positive celebration you know it didn't have the kind of military vainglory of victory day um you know it was much more about the positive things of russianness and a sense of community rather than the sort of negative and that's why we're better and that's why we behave everyone else now that does seem to be changing as well as even this is repurposed as part of putin's message of russia as a beleaguered fortress facing a, a collective west that is trying to sort of do it down and particularly we had Volodin speaker of the state duma um making a sort of a big pitch about the fact that really that unity 
is necessary precisely because all Russians must now show their patriotism. All Russians must now pull together for the survival and, and victory of the motherland. And so what we think is once a day that's celebrated, shall we say, the Russian Federation, and I would stress that Federation is not about Russian, ethnic Russians, it was, you know, Russians of every denomination and creed and ethnicity, as one big happy family, now it's more like the unity of the, of the barracks and the army unit. So basically, unity means shutting, shutting up and doing what you're told by the commander-in-chief. All right. Uh, well, thanks for that. Uh, a lot of interesting points there. And you mentioned kind of the challenge, I guess, for Putin and, and, and the Kremlin uh, with the elections and, and talk of 80%. I think Peskov even said, um, you know, Putin could could easily get 95% or 90%. Uh, so, you know, definitely setting up uh, kind of expectations, uh, you know, at a, at a difficult time. Um, so um, be, it will be interesting, uh, I guess, to say the ways to see how how that plays out. Um, now, the last question I, I wanted to ask um, is uh, about Russia's war on Ukraine. Uh, two trends I think I've seen lately are discussion um, in Ukraine uh, and, and outside of Ukraine, uh, discussion of essentially whether there is now a stalemate, uh, which seems like a strange word maybe to me uh, when there's heavy fighting happening every day. But the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, Valery Zaluzhny, used it in a recent article in The Economist, and there was pushback uh, this weekend from President Volodymyr Zelensky. And there have been several other developments I won't go into, but but have kind of, uh, you know, intensified the feeling of, of uh, disagreements and, and, and discord, I guess, high up in Ukraine. Uh, and I think um, this incident uh, also over the weekend in which, uh, you know, lar a large number of, of soldiers from um, Transcarpathia were killed um, when they were um, involved in, in, a, in a medals ceremony that was held close to the front line, so exposed, I guess, to attacks. So that seems likely to, you know, to certainly would not likely to do anything to to calm, the, to dissipate, d decrease the discord. And the other uh, trend that's, I guess, related, or at least what I think I've seen, is, is an increase uh, lately in talk in the West about whether... Um, Ukraine should accept some kind of compromise uh, that would leave Russia in control of some of its territory, at least temporarily. Not that Russia is saying anything about any such compromise, um, but in any case, I, I'd be interested in, in your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, speaking of expectation management, it applies to Ukraine as well. I mean, let's start with that word stalemate. And yes, it sounds weird when it's still such a a violent front line. But we have to realize that stalemate does not, for example, suggest a frozen conflict. I mean, I think it's a question of essentially a dynamic stalemate in that, yes, of course, there will be continuing attacks and there will be movement of the front line back and forth, local reversals, local advances. But in very broad terms, I think what uh, Zaluzhny was trying to say is that actually there seems to be, as you throw in a different word, a deadlock. That at present, the Russians can't beat the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians can't beat the Russians. Now, 
Look, he is you know, clearly a, a highly successful individual with, frankly, information that no, none of the rest of us have. I mean, even when one looks at Western governments, for example, they don't even know for sure how many casualties, for example, the Ukrainians have suffered. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we, we have to sort of take, take that a, as a serious assessment. In part, he is, I think, simply expressing what is fairly self-evident, which is that the counteroffensive, much vaunted in some quarters, has not proven anywhere near as successful or as effective as Kiev hoped uh, or indeed expected, and indeed, likewise, the West. Now, that does not mean to say it's been a failure. I think one has to recognise that you can't just simply gauge military operations simply by how many square meters or miles they, they they retake there's been a lot of really serious degrading of russian capabilities that's been done and in some ways it sets the ukrainians up i would suggest in a much better position for when the sort of active phase of the war is likely to recommence in spring but still you know there's no way of getting around the fact that this has not been what they had hoped you know, there were some people who were talking about them having you know, been able to drive all the way to the Azov coastline, retaking Melitopol or Mariupol, or at the very least, Tokmak, this very important road and rail junction along the, the land bridge to Crimea. Well, Tokmak is now within so-called fire control. In other words, it can be shelled. But no, it, it, it's still in, in Russian hands. And I think in part, frankly, what they're really addressing is the need to manage Western expectations. There is a rather depressing kind of pendulum of opinion that tends to manifest itself. And it's in part in the media, but also from a lot of the policymakers who frankly have less military and strategic experience, shall we say, is that at one point it's triumphalist and any minute now Ukrainian soldiers will be washing their boots in the Azov Sea. And the next minute, it's totally hopeless, and essentially the, the the Russians are you know near enough winning. The truth, of course, is in between, and I think that's very much what what they're both trying to get at in in, in different ways. And although Zelensky has, as you said, pushed back against uh, Zaluzhny's use of the word stalemate, and also in a in a move that's hard not to interpret as in part cutting Zaluzhny off at the knees, um, has just uh, replaced his uh, commander of special forces. Nonetheless, I think you know, one, one can see a sort of common strategy of essentially turning to the West. And whereas earlier in their quest to try and ensure that the West continue to provide the military and financial support that Ukraine needs, their line was basically, if you scale up what you give us, we're going to be able to win this war quickly. And obviously, a lot of people thought that sounded like a good deal. Now they're turning it around into a, if you don't scale up what you're giving us, this war will go on forever. And therefore, they are, ironically enough, playing the same kind of game as Putin. Putin himself is trying to demoralize the West by implying that this is going to be some kind of forever war. And the West is going to be spending billions every month on it for the foreseeable future. Well, in some ways, this is what... Zelensky and Zaluzhny are also playing to. But their answer is therefore, so the answer is not to back away from support for Ukraine, but rather to scale it up. Because look, they, they are aware, particularly at the moment with, in, in the light of what's going on in the Middle East, that it's, it's harder to maintain the kind of support that 
Ukraine needs. So I, I think we should see this not so much or not, or not simply a reflection of what's actually happening on the battlefield. Because I say, I think that one has to recognize that Ukraine will be in a stronger position next year once they've had more of a chance to sort of metabolize the kit from the West that they've been getting into their battle plans and so forth. But also that it's about the, the political management of the West. And in that context, to talk about, um, you know, peace talks and whether or not Ukraine should should be willing to accept some kind of compromise. I mean, this is going to probably make me very unpopular with many of your listeners, but I think one has to recognize that Ukraine is going to make have to make some kind of compromises at some point to make peace. Because if one looks at Ukraine's current stated demands, I mean, they include things like essentially war crimes tribunals for Putin co things which are going to be both impossible to actually impose but also impossible for the kremlin even a post putin kremlin i think to to accept so you know some kind of compromise is going to be necessary that doesn't necessarily need to be territorial but so much of it will depend on what happens on on the battlefield i mean at present i honestly don't think that there's any serious western pressure on kiev to be negotiating because at the moment there is no basis for negotiation both sides still think that time is on their side and therefore they're not willing to make any kind of serious moves i think this is more about preparing the ground it's about laying down lines that say look at some point when it becomes plausible to negotiate you are going to have be a little bit more flexible than you're currently making out because when it comes down to it we have to recognize something that for all the pretty phrases being said by by political leaders and so forth the west's interests are not, not exactly the same as ukraine's yes the west has an interest in in ukraine winning or at least not losing in this conflict but it also has many other interests, so as, as we're seeing playing out in, in the Middle East and as we could see play out in Taiwan someday and whatever. And also when we say oh, the West, well, there is no unified West for all that Putin may claim. Um, it's not all run by Washington. Um, you know, one can already see differences of opinion between what's the, sort of the, the view in Warsaw compared to what the view is in Rome, given uh, Giorgia Meloni's recent... Uh, uh, admissions when she was sort of phone pranked by the indomitable Vovan and Lexus into admitting that there was indeed U Ukraine fatigue. So, I mean, in, in that circumstance, and again, I apologize for the very rambling answer, but in, in that circumstance, I mean, obviously Zelensky and indeed Zaluzhny, because if you're commander in chief of the military, you are also a political actor. They naturally have to essentially do what they can to engineer Western attitudes. And I think a lot of what, what we're getting is quite that. But also one has to recognize that in the future, it will probably be the case that Zelensky is going to have to start engineering Ukrainian attitudes. You can't continue to hide behind saying, well, the opinion polls that say, oh, 80%, 90% say that we should fight through until total victory. Part of the role of leadership is sometimes to say to the public, look, let's be let's be realistic about this situation. But as I say, I think that this is all about preparations for the future. At the moment, just as I don't see any real threat to Western assistance to Ukraine, 
I don't see there being any scope for negotiations. So as I said, I think a lot of this is just simply the West more or less saying that when the time comes, we are going to expect you to be a little bit more flexible because we are frankly tired of spending so much money on bankrolling this war. All right. Well, thanks, uh, Mark. Um, you said rambling, but uh, to me, that was a, a very kind of forward-looking, forward-looking answer uh, to my question. So I appreciate that. Uh, and we are going to wrap it up here. Um, again, thanks very much for joining me, Mark. As I said, always a pleasure. All right. Once again, I've been speaking to Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. This has been The Week Ahead in Russia. Our theme music is Nyestrelai, or Don't Shoot, a song from the early 1980s by Yuri Shevchuk and DDT. Please be sure to check out my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which covers the latest developments in Russian politics and society, as well as Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Subscribe by visiting www.rferl.org.